Please pray with me. Father, I pray that we would hear the words that you spoke to Peter, James, and John. And in hearing, I pray that we would obey. I pray that we would listen to the words of your Son. Amen. In the transfiguration, those three disciples got to see Jesus for who he truly is. His glory was made evident for just that brief moment. Almost every time in the Bible there's a theophany. Don't get turned off by the big word. Theophany is just a visible appearance of God. Almost every time in the Bible there's a theophany. It's utterly overwhelming. We heard those words at the end of the Exodus reading. At the end of the Exodus reading, it says, Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain. A devouring fire. That's the norm. That when there's a theophany, God appears in light and fire and smoke a radiant cloud that overwhelms and knocks people down. Think about the vision that Isaiah saw, the theophany of Isaiah 6, where he says, I saw the Lord seated on his throne, and the very train of his robe, the hem of it, filled the entire temple, and the temple shook from the foundations upward, and it was full of smoke and fire, and fiery beings were flying to and fro, yelling out, holy, holy, holy. It terrified Isaiah. That's the norm for a theophany in the Bible, is overwhelming light and fire and terror. It's actually what John is given in Revelation when he sees Jesus, and what he sees is one who is overwhelming with light and glory, a voice that sounds like many waters, and John falls down before him like a dead man. This is what theophanies are usually like in the Bible. There's a few that are a little bit more subdued. Abraham meets God before God goes on to Sodom. And there's something here. Abraham knows he's speaking to God. But the glory is subdued. It's tamed for a moment. When Jacob wrestles with the angel, he knows there is something unusual about this man. But the glory is subdued. The burning bush itself, you could say, is a subdued version of these big theophanies where there's something very strange and unusual, but Moses can dare to approach it. But usually, when there's a theophany, it's utterly overwhelming, light and fire that knocks people back. There's one great exception to this general trend. That's the life of Jesus itself. The life of Jesus on earth is one continuous theophany. And yet when God came and became man, he clothed himself in humility. He hid his glory. There's never been a greater case of someone going incognito. I was thinking about the book by Mark Twain, The Pauper and the Prince, where he imagines a prince who looks just like Edward VI switching places, and the rightful prince walking around like a pauper. There's never been an instance 
of glory being muted as drastically as in the very life of Jesus Christ. This continual theophany, but with the glory hidden. This person whose hands crafted the very foundations of the world is reduced to one like you and me with hands of frailty that get tired and that hurt. This one whose eyes can see all of eternity, past, present, and future in a single glance, waking up with eyes that are tired, gritty, blurry. This one whose voice can call life out of nothingness, having a sore throat. There has never been an instance of glory being so muted as in the incarnation. My point of all of this is that theophanies usually are overwhelming fire and glory, but in the earthly life of Jesus, we actually see the glory of God hidden, subdued. Even his miracles are just the tip of the iceberg of what his glory would be. The one who could call all of creation to an existence, healing a few people is nothing to him. Glory is so subdued in his earthly life, except for this moment. And that's the strangeness of the transfiguration. That in this moment, the glory bursts back forth on this scene. In this moment, when he brings Peter and James and John to the top of this mountain, they see Jesus for who he actually is. The veil is parted, and they see what's been hidden all these years. And the question is, why? If the life of Jesus' muted glory covered theophany, why did he part the veil for this just one little moment? Why did they see the glory that should have been shining at every moment? And the short answer is that they would listen to him. That they would listen to him. The context of this, if you read Matthew 16, Peter's talked to the disciples and he said, who do people say that I am? And the people have offered, the disciples offer the answers that people are giving. And then he looks at them and he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter confesses, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Peter sees and understands who he's talking to. But immediately afterwards, Jesus then begins to speak of the necessity of the cross. And what does Simon Peter do? He rebukes the Lord. He dares to talk back to him and he says, never. He understood in some sense who Jesus was. He knew the words, Messiah, son of the living God. He saw in a sense, but he doesn't really know. He doesn't see. He doesn't understand who he's dealing with. And he dares to rebuke the Lord. He won't listen to the fact. He won't listen to the fact that Jesus must suffer. And so Jesus takes him. He takes James and John with him. And he takes them up on top of this mountain. And on top of this mountain, he reveals himself in his glory to them. The fullness of who he is, they can see it with their eyes. And he reveals himself there. And when he's coming down the mountain, what does he tell them again? Look at the end of verse 12. The Son of Man must suffer. It's an object lesson for them to realize that they should listen to Jesus when he's saying, I have come to suffer. Even the Father's voice on the mountain when he speaks out of the cloud, what does he say to them? This is my Son. 
listen to him. This whole moment is engineered. The lesson is there so that they would listen to Jesus as he spoke. What they see in that minute? What did they see up there on the mountain? They saw Jesus for who he truly is. They saw his glory. They saw that he was Messiah, the presence of Elijah and Moses. These two people that were in the expectation of the Messiah for the people. Their presence points to the fact that this indeed is the Messiah. They see the glory. They see the confirmation that he's the Messiah. They see in Elijah and Moses the symbols of law and prophets. That this one is the fulfillment of everything that God has spoken. All of the law and the prophets. They hear the voice of God. They see this is the very son of the living God. They hear the God saying, I'm pleased with this one. That the pleasure of God rests on Jesus. They see all of this. Revealed Jesus for who he truly is in his glory. And they see for just that few moments what we will see for all eternity one day. It was only for a moment, though. They couldn't stay there. Do you notice that Peter tries to? It's good that we're here. Let's build booths. I'll honor you. Shade, you can rest. We'll stay on this mountaintop a while. Peter tried to stay. He wanted to remain there in that glory. But he wasn't allowed, was he? We have to descend back into the darkness of humanity. We have to descend back into humility. We have to descend back towards suffering to the very darkness of the cross. That was the path of the Son of God. He would not remain in glory when the cross still was in front of him. He would not stay there, and the disciples couldn't either. You know, twice in the Gospels, the Father shouts from heaven, this is my beloved Son, and I'm well pleased with him. Once is at the baptism when Jesus steps into the water to identify with sinners. And once is here, when he's just been insisting with his disciples that I must suffer. In both of these moments, it's like the Father is exceptionally pleased whenever the Son moves to the lowest places of humanity, whenever he picks up the mantle of suffering for the sake of humanity, whenever he identifies with those who are at the very bottom of the barrel because of their sin. The Father shouts, I'm pleased with you in this moment. This is the path that is right. But Peter resisted, did he not? I want to stay on the mountain. We don't need to go back down into that place. You know, it's interesting to me that Mary, the sister of Martha, was content to sit at the feet of Jesus and just listen. Just listen. Mary, the mother of Jesus, the one who carried God himself in her womb. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was content just to take things into her heart, hold them, ponder them. But Peter the bold, Peter the I, I act and I speak before I think. Peter's not content to wait and to watch and to listen. And he says to Jesus, you will never go to the cross over my dead body. He says to Jesus, I will never leave this mountain. I want to remain in your glory forever. There's no thought to close his mouth. 
and listen to Jesus, to follow his lead. Peter boldly steps out. There's no thought even for the other nine. Peter's brother's at the bottom of the mountain. Perhaps it'd be more understandable if he said, could, could I go back and get Andrew and then we could stay here? He doesn't think about those. He doesn't think about the words of Jesus. He's like many of us, is he not? Unwilling to close our mouths. Unwilling to listen. Unwilling to wait. Overconfident, incapable of seeing how off course we are at any moment. And the father thunders back at him. This is my son. Stop talking, Peter. Listen to him. You know, one of my Bible school teachers in Germany pointed out to me that Peter received a special gift. He's the only one in all of the scriptures where it's recorded that he was interrupted by Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. <laughs> all three members of the Trinity at one point or another said, Peter, stop talking. <laughs> a special gift that perhaps many of us need. The voice from heaven knocks them flat. They're terrified. They're on their faces on the ground. They're silent now. Peter's not talking anymore. He's pinned to the ground in terror and fear, unable to do or say anything. And it takes the touch of Jesus to raise them from the dead. And notice it's no longer the touch of the glory-filled, overwhelming Jesus. It's Jesus clothed in his humility again. Elijah and Moses have departed. The scene is quiet and humble. And by his touch, Jesus says, get up. You don't have to be afraid. He doesn't condemn Peter for his foolhardy speech. He just simply says, guys, don't tell anybody about this yet. It's not time. Don't tell anybody about this moment yet. My suffering needs to come first. You can imagine that Peter is beginning to get it, at least beginning to. What do we do with this? It's a beautiful story. What do we do with this? At first, I was captivated by the fact that even though Peter and James and John got to see the glory of Jesus, Jesus for who he truly is, even though they got to see him, I was captivated by the fact that they weren't allowed to remain there. Seems like to me that oftentimes we think that the Christian life would be easier if we could just see Jesus for who he truly is, right? Wouldn't that make worship and obedience easier if we could see with our eyes the glory that he has? One day we'll see it, right? One day we will see it face to face and we ask, why not now? Wouldn't it make everything easier? And yet they weren't allowed to remain there. It's interesting to me that almost all of the ministry of Jesus was done with him clothed in humility. Wouldn't it have won more people if he appeared in his glory to everyone? And yet he chooses to do his work in humility with his glory clothed. They couldn't remain on the mountain. The ministry of the church is like that. We wish that it would be glorious, overwhelming, and no one could deny it, right? But like the life of Jesus, almost all of it is clothed with utter humility. It's not on the mountaintop, in other words. 
This captivated me at first. It's not that those mountaintop moments aren't given. There are Pentecost moments offered to the church. They do occur from time to time. If you've been paying attention to Christian news sources, one seems to be going on right now at Asbury University. There was a chapel service that started on February 8th. By my watch, it's the 19th. That's 11 days ago. A chapel service that started on the 8th that has not stopped. An auditorium that can hold about 1,500 people has been full for 11 days, and the overflow chapels, holding another 1,000 or so between them, have been full too, and the lines outside to get in, hundreds of people waiting outside. And inside, what's happening? People confessing their sins to each other, praying, staying there all night to worship. It's like a Pentecost moment happening right there, right now. It's what it seems. I'm not, the point is that there, there's, there's moments where those occur. And I pray for one of those here. But the reality of this story is that we don't get to remain in them. And the temptation is, I, I just want to remain there. Peter's temptation. I just want to remain there. There's something wrong if we don't get to stay there. And I was captivated by the lesson that almost all of Jesus' work is not done like that. It's the work of humility. And if you want to pray for the students of Asbury right now, pray that when this moment ceases, they won't think that means God's departed from them. Pray that they'll realize that it's in humility that most of his work is done. He asks us to walk by faith and not by sight. And the point is, in those rare moments when sight is given, rejoice, but don't get confused when it departs. Later, I was captivated by the fact that only three of the disciples actually got to see this. I just wondered, were the others jealous later on when they found out? Did Jesus know that only these three were ready for this moment? Or was it the opposite? Was it these three had a special need and they needed this moment? In his wisdom, God allowed some to see things that he didn't offer to others. And this captivated me. Because most of us want to be in the crowd that sees the miracles in this life, do we not? No one says, let me be one of the nine who never sees the glory. And yet if we can extrapolate from this story, only a quarter of them, and I don't think the math holds, but if we can extrapolate, only a quarter of them got to see this sort of thing. In other words, most of us will be given the humbler path where Jesus veils himself. And we may say, why am I not given this, that, that they were given? I don't know. In the wisdom of God, he offers to each what we need. And the only reassurance that I would give is the words of Jesus that he spoke to Thomas. He said, you believe because you saw? Blessed are those who believe who have not seen. There's a particular blessing for those who are not given the vision on the mountaintop. Later, as I thought about this passage more, I got captivated just by the vision of Jesus himself. Our Lord shining with glory, brighter than the sun, shining with power and the beauty. If we saw him like this, we would dance, we would sing, we could sit in silent awe. We would never want to leave this place. We would suddenly understand why Peter wanted to remain there and forgot about Andrew, his brother. I want to remain here forever. The vision of Jesus' true glory captivated me. And it really provoked in me this question, 
Do I appreciate the glory of the one I serve? Do I even have a glimpse of how magnificent he is? One day when he reveals himself, everyone on he in heaven and on earth and under the earth, this is Philippians 2, will hit their knees and cry out, you are the Lord. The one with all glory calls us brother and sister. The one with all glory calls us friend. I was captivated by that question. Do we see who he is? See by faith in our hearts. In the end, though, I was caught by the Father's simple command. Listen to him. Listen to him. And I couldn't get past the question, am I actually listening to him? This really is what I want to ask you all. Are you listening to him? This was the point of this lesson. Listen to him. Is his word the most important thing? Is what he says, does that take precedence over your desires, over your fears? Is his word spoken to you, bread, more important than anything else? Do we listen when he says, stop being anxious about your money? Stop being anxious about your home. Stop being anxious about your clothing. Do we, do we listen when he says, you know, the only thing that matters, the only thing that matters is that you pursue the kingdom of God. Do we listen to that word? Do we listen when he says to us, deny yourself? Offer your life. Give it away. Don't try to live for yourself. You can't save your life that way. Do we listen when he says, be like a child. Drop your pride, your defensiveness, your anger, and become dependent. Wait on me. Do we listen when he says, pursue purity and righteousness. It matters to me. Do we listen to those words? Do you listen to the words that he says when he says very simply, I forgive you? Maybe one of the hardest words to believe, is it not? When he says, I forgive you. Do you listen to those words? Do you listen to the words that he says when he says, I love you? And I will not stop loving you. In the end, this is what got me was just a simple question, are you listening to the Son? Has he been speaking to you and you have been ignoring it or hiding from that very word? Are you listening to him? He revealed his glory to Peter, James, and John that they might listen to him, and that's the Father's word, listen. And so my call to you this morning very simply is listen to the Son. Listen as he speaks. And if you are confronted by all the places where you have pushed back against his word, if you're confronted by those places when you come to confession, lay those before the Lord. Confess the places where you're refusing to listen. And when you come to his table, listen to one other word that he spoke. Because he called this meal a covenant meal. Covenants bind people together. Is that not beautiful? That this meal binds you to him. Do you listen to him when he declares that? I was struck by this this morning. 
And like me, many of you probably know that there's lots of places where it's difficult to listen. So come to the Lord and confess and hear his word of forgiveness. Listen to that as well. Amen.